Good morning. Be reading out of the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Shannon. I love this church. As we were singing, there were so many lines within the songs that we were singing that it was reminding me of my love for Great City Church. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this body. I thank you for the Ascenders teams who have gone out or have sent out, rather, people who go to every tribe and tongue and nation people and they speak the gospel message that people might hear and come to believe. And so would you add to your church those who are calling upon the name of the Lord? Father, would you give ears to hear this morning and eyes to see and hearts opened to believe and trust your gospel? Would you draw all people to yourself? Amen. Well, we are starting a new summer series now called Gospel People, and it will run over the course of the next six weeks. It's usual for us to do a sermon series in the summer and pick up a particular theme or a particular idea and then work through that for a period of time over the summer. And, and this year, we're doing the sermon series called Gospel 
people. And I think, Emily, did you make that? Thank you so much for making that graphic for us. I love, I love the little kids. Uh, that's what I noticed first when I looked up there. So this sermon series will run over a period of six weeks. Now, one of the things that we have in our bylaws are called distinctives. Okay, they're distinctive. They're what makes Grace City Church, Grace City Church. And I, I think really they're, they're not all that distinctive because I wish these things were true of every church and then they would be normal, not distinctives. But they're not always normal. And so we call them distinctives. And one of those distinctives is what we call gospel centrality. It says in our bylaws, we are passionate about gospel centrality. And it includes this statement, the gospel is centered in Christ, is the foundation of the life of the church, and is our only hope in eternal life. That means that gospel centrality, it impacts how we think about everything. It impacts how we think about worship. It impacts how we think about preaching. It impacts how you think about how you put your kids to bed at night. Gospel centrality means that we think the gospel touches everything. And it changes everything, and it affects everything. It changes what we believe, it changes what we feel, and it changes what we do with our hands. That's, that's gospel centrality. Kids, what happens if you throw a pebble into the lake? <laughs> I didn't hear you. It drowns. That's true. <laughs> what happens with the water? Splash. Yes, Monty. Good. And what else happens? Ripples. Ripples go out. A cause lands on the surface of the water, and ripples go out. That's gospel centrality. The gospels come into the world and ripples go out and it changes everything about everything you do and what you think and what you believe. That's gospel centrality. It changes how you eat and what you love and how you go to sleep at night and what your desires are and your hope. That's, that's gospel centrality. Well, one of the things that those ripples roll over is who you are, who you are, your identity. There, there probably has never been as much emphasis on your identity in human history as there is right now. We're all about identities, okay? And the gospel has something to say about that, too. Who we are is impacted by the gospel. Our identities are formed by the gospel. And so we're going to look at what it means to be a gospel people by looking at what it means to be the gospel and the church, the gospel and community, the gospel and marriage, the gospel and parenting, how you put your kids to sleep at night, right? The gospel and singleness and the gospel and the lost. The gospel forms who we are. So Jeremy Martinson, Pastor Jeremy, I should note, I'm not the pastor here. If you're a visitor, I'm not the guy, right? I'm a guy. 
But Jeremy Martinson gave me this assignment. He says, I want you to preach in the gospel in the church. And that's it. That's all I got. No text. Just an idea, the gospel in the church. And we could have done 60 things on that, couldn't we have? We could have said, well, I think the gospel sustains the church. That'd be true. The gospel provides joy to the church. Undoubtedly true. The gospel provides boldness to the church. Sanctifies the church. The gospel humbles the church. The gospel fuels worship. I worship when I hear those songs of the gospel. The gospel causes us to worship. It creates a worshiping church. But we have time for one thing, not eight things or not 60 things. And so I got to pick what I wanted to talk about. And here's what I want to argue today. The gospel creates the church. The gospel brings the church into existence. To state it another way, the gospel brings the church into existence by creating a new people group. A new people group created through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we can look at how that happens, and before I can argue that that's true, we've got to define what the church is, because this is going to be super awkward if I say the gospel creates the church, and you think the church is a building. This, that won't go well. So that's your hint. The, the church isn't a building. I, I don't think there's a single time in the New Testament where the word church is used in reference to a building. Okay, but we talk that way, don't we? We say, I'm going to go to church. Okay, that's that's, uh, we might ask somebody, where do you go to church? We might say, that's a beautiful church. That you're a be- you are a beautiful church. But that's not what we usually mean when we say that. And so the, the church is not a building. Secondly, the church isn't foremost an institution, though we talk that way too, and there's a sense in which that's a little true. There's an element of truth in that. But it's not primarily an institution in the way that we might think of about a college or a university or, or a, a corporation that's guided by these governing documents and has hierarchical structures. That, that's not the main way that the Bible talks about the church. The Bible talks about the church as it's a people. It's a people. The Bible talks about the church as if it's a group of people. And so you might think, well, that's probably then the church are the people that go to church. The church are the people that participate in the worship of the, of the services of the church or take communion or, or participate in baptism. That's the church. The people that go and participate in church is the church. And that, that would also be wrong. Did, did you hear that? That, that would also be wrong because that's not what distinguishes the church so before i can argue from acts 2 that the gospel creates the church i need to first help us see what it is that the church is and then it'll be very obvious how the gospel creates the church because listen The gospel creates the church, and the church is a people, but not all who claim to be part of the church are. 
And so as we look at the rest of this text, I mean, as we jump into Acts 2, would you interrogate your heart and ask, is, is that me? Is that me? Are these distinguishing factors, these distinguishing marks, is that me? Am I part of the church? Okay, so let's look at some language from the Bible. That's what matters, isn't it? Okay, Acts 20, 28. Now, listen to how the church is distinguished. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Who's the church? It's those who have been obtained by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, who are the church. Those sanctified by Christ Jesus and who call upon his name in every place. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish that's the particulars of the church called the flock they have overseers caring for them they are they have been obtained by the very blood of the Son of God. They're called saints. They're made up of people everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord. They're loved by Christ. He sacrificed himself for them, and he will present them to himself in splendor. That's a people. But it's a particular people. It's not merely just those who attend church or participate in its worship. There's distinctives that mark out the church from the world even when the church sits in the midst of the world in church. So which, which group are you in? Are you in the church? Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to draw our attention to what I think is the distinguishing factor about who the church is. It's, it's the distinguishing factor, so much so that if we were to pull this distinguishing factor out of the mix, it would cease to be the church. That's how important it is. Without this, there's no church. So what is it? Well, as we enter Acts 2, our text for today, we see that the gospel of the death and resurrection has come to the disciples. And, and, and Jesus has been resurrected, and he ministers to the disciples, he speaks of the kingdom, he speaks of the gospel to them over a period of days before he ascends to the Father, and he tells them of the gospel. Okay? Well, what is the gospel? Jesus is king. That's the gospel. And with him, he ushers in a kingdom. In his first coming... He laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for all of those who would trust in him. And he was resurrected from the dead. And he offers a period of amnesty 
to all of those who will bow the knee to King Jesus and trust in Him in this period between His first coming and His eventual return. And so Jesus says, repent of your sins and come to me and I will forgive you before I come back to judge the quick and the dead. So a period of amnesty is offered to you if you simply trust in him. That's the gospel. But before he ascends back to the Father, he makes this remarkable promise. And it's a promise that's grounded on earlier promises. Not a new promise. It's a renewal of a very old promise. So listen to what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then he ascends to the Father and he waits. And the disciples wait. And then, the fulfillment of the promise. Recorded in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seated. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Shock and awe. That should cause you to fall out of your chair in astonishment and amazement. Sometimes we can become accustomed to marvelous things, and so we fail to see them as marvelous. This is shocking, unprecedented, totally new, something that will change the entire course of the world. Just happened. An unprecedented shift in salvation history just occurred. You might think, ah, I know what's shocking. I know what's stunning. The Spirit has come. The Spirit's come. That's it. That's it. The Spirit has come. That's what's shocking. That, that's shocking, but that's not what's most shocking. That's not what's most surprising. That's not what's most remarkable about this passage. Let me read it again, and you listen for what's most remarkable. Okay? He says, this is Luke. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All of them? Yep. All of them. The full number of the people of God filled with the Spirit of God and the church is born. It's a miracle. The full number of the disciples filled with Jesus. That's stunning. That's remarkable. That's shocking. That's changed the course of 
human events remarkable. Now, that may not feel that way. Because that's all you've known, isn't it? That's been your life. But there was a time when it wasn't that way. When that wasn't the case. And so let's go backwards in our Bibles that we might understand more clearly and feel this reality more acutely. You might remember that in the book of Exodus, God rescues the people of Israel, the, the, the uh, Israelites, the Hebrews. He rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. And he draws them out through Moses, who rescues them, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. Okay? And there he establishes a covenant with them. Now, you might remember what a covenant is. A covenant is an agreement between parties that governs the relationship. And God makes lots of covenants. This one is called the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. We use those terms interchangeably. And so God draws the people to him, and through this mediator, Moses, he establishes a covenant with the people of Israel. And he says something like, I'll be your God, and you be my people. And if you obey my covenant, if you follow the rules and precepts and statutes of my covenant, I will bless you. But if you don't, I will curse you. That's, that's really the summary of the covenant. That's the old covenant. That's why your Bible is broken into two, that you have a New Testament and an Old Testament. Testament just means covenant. The old covenant, that's that part. And then there's a new covenant. So the summary of the old covenant is, be my people, I will be your God, obey my laws, and I will bless you. Or, I will curse you for your disobedience. When that covenant is in operation, it's mostly curses. The people didn't obey. The, the people couldn't obey. Under that covenant, occasionally, the Spirit of God would come upon a king or a prophet or a priest and usually for a short period of time for a particular task. You can probably think of some. Oh, Saul, David, Samson, the judges, right? We're kind of famous for this. The, the Spirit of God would come upon the judge. They would deliver people from the hand of the enemy and then the Spirit would depart and they're back to kind of a monstrous person, honestly, usually. And that, that's how it worked. The Spirit was present, but not operable in the same way that we experience. And in fact, Moses draws our attention to that reality, even in the midst of it. You might remember in Numbers chapter 11, these 70 elders get anointed with the Spirit, and they begin to prophesy, and Joshua Okay, who's kind of a territorial guy, he's like, hey, whoa, Moses, these guys are prophesying. That's really just for you. The Spirit's on them, but Spirit really should only be on you. You've got to shut these guys down. It's kind of what, Moses, or what, what Joshua responds with. And, and, and Moses rebukes him. And listen to his rebuke. He says, are you jealous for my sake? 
Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's the longing of Moses' heart. That the full number of the people of God would be filled with the spirit of God. Imagine how that covenant may have been different. Imagine being the mediator of that old covenant and bringing to the people this law with promises of blessing or promises of cursing and knowing they cannot obey it. I I love the book of Deuteronomy so much. I, I maybe have mentioned this before because Deuteronomy is like a big dad speech. Kids, do your dads ever call you? Everybody into the living room. I got a dad speech. I want to have a talk, right? Come, come here. Okay? I love dad speeches. My kids know I love dad speeches. Deuteronomy is a big dad speech. It's probably the greatest dad speech ever get, given. The whole book, it, it made it into the Bible. That's a great dad speech. But, but the dad speech ends this way. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly, and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. That is not an encouraging dad speech. Moses knew that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was insufficient. Not because of the deficiencies of of the covenant, but because of the hardness of the hearts of the people. They needed circumcised hearts. They needed to have their hearts changed. No matter how many times God or Moses said, do this and don't do this, it didn't matter. It's like commanding a blind man to see. The people lacked the moral ability to do it. They were enslaved and captive to sin. And so the old covenant didn't deal with the problem of indwelling Sin And so while it, in a sense, created a people, that people were characterized by, by death. And that's what Paul calls it, a ministry of death. And so a new covenant is needed. A better covenant that will create a new covenant people. And so almost as quickly as that covenant is established, it begins to pass away. The ink wasn't even dry, or maybe the chisel wasn't even clean, right? That's how fast it starts to pass away. Almost as soon as it's instituted, it's passing away. Paul draws our attention to this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, okay, guys, you remember Moses' face shone with glory, But here's the deal. Moses began to cover his face as that glory faded away just as the old covenant faded away. 
He says, since we have such hope, we are very bold, but not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That covenant fading away even while the mediator of it lived. The author of Hebrews picks up on this theme as well. He looks back on Jeremiah and he reminds his readers of the extraordinary promises of this new covenant and this new covenant people and just how different it will be from the old covenant. He says, this is the author of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah 800 years earlier, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with, their, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and they will be, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I want that covenant. I want to be part of that one. The writer of Hebrews says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the old one obsolete. Not in he, the author of Hebrews speaking, but in Jeremiah's speaking, he makes the old one obsolete. The old is passing away, and the new covenant is coming, and with it a new covenant people. And then later, Joel, much later, while still under the old covenant, Joel prophesies a time when this will happen to all flesh. Not just kings or prophets or priests or judges, but to all flesh. And so then Acts 2 occurs much later after Jesus' death and resurrection and the announcement of the gospel and then the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh. And Peter picks up on what's going on here. He's read Joel. He's been with Jesus. He knows what's happening here. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream Dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. He knows that the age of the Messiah is going to be categorized by a new covenant people, characterized by the age to come and the spirit of God on them in these last days. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, sons and daughters, young men and old men, male servants and female servants. Peter recognizes something marvelous has occurred. The prophecies of the new covenant have come and created a new covenant people. The longing and hopes and expectations of Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and so many of the other prophets have been realized. 
the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. Oh, that all of God's people would have the Spirit on them. And so a new age has dawned. A new age has been ushered in the last days with a new covenant and a new covenant people filled with the Spirit. Not just kings or prophets or priests, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord filled with the Spirit becomes a king and a prophet and a priest. The old covenant with the old covenant priesthood and the old covenant laws and the old covenant people and the old covenant ministry of death by the letter is gone a new covenant a new covenant people a new covenant priesthood after the order of melchizedek and an indestructible life of jesus with a new covenant law that says love And a new covenant mediator, Jesus Christ, God himself. And a new covenant people called the church. That's a miracle. Jew and Gentile reconciled into one new body. That sounds too small because that sounds like it's two groups. Jew, Gentile. Let me, let me explain that or translate that. Jew and the rest of the world. That's what it means. It means Jew and everybody else. That's who this new covenant is for. Your jaw should drop. All flesh, really the spirit on all people from every tribe and tongue and nation into one new body called the church. That's a miracle. People from Africa, Asia, America, all seven continents. People from Colombia, Iraq, Papua New Guinea, North Korea, 195 countries. People called to the Lord from countries that no longer exist and countries yet to come into existence. People of every skin color, Yellow, brown, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Every language, 7,151 languages, all praising Jesus in their own tongue at this great undoing of the Tower of Babel. This is why we have ascenders teams, isn't it? Ransom your church from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Go, share the gospel. They'll believe filled with the Spirit and will glorify Jesus. That's why we do ascenders teams. Friends, too often I am afraid we miss the miracle of the church. It's God's invention. He planned it, established it, empowered it, sustains it, equips it. And sanctifies it. And we have some pretty big words, don't we? We have a lot of faults. 
us, Grace City Church, but also the universal church all over the world. And yet, if we spend so much time looking at the faults, we will miss the miracle. We will miss the miracle of what the church is. It is a sanctuary of hope for the world at a time that it is desperately needed. It's easy for us to look across the world and see radical division. God has a remedy for that. His gospel and the church of Jesus Christ. The person on the other side of the world who doesn't look like you, who doesn't dress like you, and who speaks in a language that you will never hear, but is filled with the same God as you, is part of your people group. You have more in common with them than your unbelieving relatives. If you are in the church, you are counted among a particular and peculiar people. God has given you his spirit for a purpose, hasn't he? Stop acting like you do not have the spirit. We do that, don't we? We forget that the spirit of God dwells in us. Oh, that should provide abundant hope. You're empowered for the work that he has called you to. When he says go, he will equip you. When he says stop sinning, he will satisfy you. He has given you himself in the spirit. A friend asked me last week, how do I know if I'm a Christian? And he also asked me, How do I know if I have the Spirit of God? It's the same question. That's what Acts 2 shows us. That's what the book of Acts shows us over and over and over again. It's the same question. And so let me ask you, not are you a Christian, because that's an easy question to answer. You can say, yep, I'm American. I come to church here. I give to the church. I serve on the such and such team. That's an easy question to answer. Have you received the Spirit of God? Has Acts 2 occurred in you? That's the distinguishing marker of the church. So be honest with yourself. Be honest. Have I received the Spirit of God? There's no value in being dishonest to yourself. There really isn't. You just be honest. And and if you haven't, I'll be up here. I'm sure some of the other elders will come up here. And I want to talk to you. I want you to trust in Jesus. I want you to join the church made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation across the world for 2,000 years who have been filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, glorify your name in this body and in every local church gathering across 
Fargo-Moorhead and the world, would every single person come to know you. Thank you so much for your spirit. Thank you that you have empowered us for your work, that you have caused us to trust in you and believe. Glorify your name, Jesus, at Grace City Church. Would you help us to do that? I pray that every single person here would be empowered to be witnesses in your world as you said to your disciples before your ascension. And so would you empower us for that, that we might be living testimonies of who you are. And so be with us, Lord Jesus, in the remainder of our worship time. In your glorious name, amen.